So in this past weekend, my husband and I taught a couple's workshop of the sort that we've done many of, and uh, worked with three couples um, who were interested to look at how could they use their couple relationship as a venue for practice? How could their relationship become a sacred relationship? And what they were doing, the activity that led to awakening, whether it is the activity of conversation or running your household or your physical and erotic connection, whatever it is, could that be part of your practice? And so it led me to be thinking a bit about the form of practice. And, you know, when Buddhism started, and certainly the form of Buddhism that we come from, the Theravadin world, the word Tara means elder and usually refers to a monk, actually. A monk not a nun. And so in the, in the early many centuries of Buddhism, monasticism was the at least preferred mode of practice. And, um, and a lot of the texts, if you read them, have to do with the Buddha talking to his monks and occasionally to his nuns, but there weren't so many of them. The fact that there were any is remarkable, actually, and tells you something about um, how awake he was and very much ahead of his time. And this creates difficulties sometimes because people read the text and they go, but, you know, that's not me, I'm not a monk, I'm not celibate. And most of us don't like it when we hear the kind of thing that I've heard on occasion, which is, well, you know, next lifetime. Next lifetime you will have a male body, which would be better, and better yet, you will become a monk, because that's what you need to have. You need to be a celibate male monk in order to be fully awakened. I find this highly annoying, and I don't believe it for a minute. So, what do we do with this? And because after all, I, I also deeply trust that the Buddha and many beings since him have been very, very awake people, very interested in finding what is true in this moment. So, of course, if you think about it a little, and I've been having some fun doing this in recent days, it was probably true in the time of the Buddha that it was better to be a man. You know, you just had better chances. It was a more privileged position. You had more say about your life. You were higher up on the social hierarchy. It was better. And not only that, if you became a monk, then you lived in a community that was dedicated to practice and you didn't have the burden of the householder life. So, you know, it was a form that really worked in a way of understanding it that suited those times. And, you know, as I've done some study on this over the years, and certainly even in the West, for example, in Europe, in the Middle Ages, for a woman, 
to choose to go into the monastic life was a really smart choice if you wanted an education and if you wanted to live a life that had some freedom where you were not owned by some man, either your father or your husband. And so choosing the monastic way of life in that time was also a really smart thing for a woman and continued for men to be an option Sometimes if you were the younger son or whatever, so you didn't have much hope for a lucrative way of being in the world, it was also a good way to get an education, to have a life that had some freedom. And then, of course, we have a a strand of Buddhism that went off into Japan and became Korea and Japan and became Zen, and where there is more lay practice, but the form became very um, shaped by the the Korean, Chinese Korean and Japanese culture and so a lot of mm, doing things just so and some of us in our lay lives have tried to adopt some of that, that doesn't work so very well here in the West either so really what I wanted to say today is um, to pick up a thread that goes way back in my own spiritual history which is the notion of vocation. Some of you probably never heard of it. Some of you who were raised Catholic know it very well. So in Catholicism, you have a vocation. The best one, of course, was to be a priest or a nun. And, but there's some sense of what everybody has as a calling. And some being drawn to a particular way of living. Everyone in this room is a householder. Some of you have had careers in the past and now you don't, you're retired and you've stepped back from them. Some of you are in the midst of it, some of you are raising children, some of you are caring for elderly parents. We all have ways in which we've chosen to live our lives in this particular time. Some of us are getting close to being the elderly parents that everybody else is taking care of, I guess, but um, I don't think we're any of us quite there yet. So, what would it be to honor the way in which you live your life, the form of your life, as a spiritual practice? That's what I'm really wanting to say. That every one of us can honor our relationships, whether we have partners, or children, or parents, or very good friends, or work relationships where you have bosses and colleagues and that kind of thing, those can become a vehicle for your practice. And in every one of those situations to find ways in which to mm, let go and to open up to some sense of bigger self that isn't about I and me and mine. So every relationship can be a vehicle for practice. Every way of living your life, if you're living a relatively quiet, retired life, perhaps alone in your apartment or your home, then that, how do you live your life? Can you live your life in such a way that it has elements of practice, that it has some form to it in which you begin to mm, let go of self and so you know the, in the Zen world they have a saying that it comes actually from one of the great sutras, sutras 
about form is emptiness and emptiness is form. And so having a form is sometimes a way to let go of self. Sometimes not having a form is a way to let go of self. You have to sort out which one is the practice that you most need. Buddhism in the West in the 21st century has come to a really interesting place, I think. And it is no longer the Buddhism of 2,500 years ago. It is, except for a few people, it's no longer a monastic Buddhism. It is very much here a Buddhism of householder life. And it's not, I think, a practice that you just do at a center like this, where you come in, you sit, and then you get up and you do whatever you want. Coming here is only sort of like going to the gas station, you know. You come in, you get fueled, you practice a little bit more intensely, and then you go out there and you continue, but your practice does not stop when you put your shoes on. In fact, you could work with, can you put your shoes on as a practice? And what would that look like? So that you over and over and over again are seeking what is true in this particular moment, what is the most skillful way to be in this particular moment, how can I be kind and compassionate, truthful with myself, with the other beings, how can I be respectful with the other objects of this particular moment, because they're part of the present moment. How does everything become part of our practice? So I think I'll stop there and see if you have questions or comments about how to do practice in your everyday life. Or any other question, but preferably on the theme for service. Clear, obvious, and easy? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Maybe quite the contrary, and therefore there's no question. Pardon? Maybe it's quite the contrary, it's hard to form questions. <laughs> it's hard to form questions. Yeah. yeah. Because it's not easy, is it? It's not. It's not. It's not. It's really challenging. And you know, I think when we forget that, thank you for that, actually. Because I think we forget how hard it is. And then we don't respect what we're doing as practice. You know, if somebody says to you, well, I'm giving away all of my belongings and I'm going to shave my head and I'm going to go off and be a monk. Everybody goes, wow. You know, and there's, you spend time talking to this person and maybe you give them a party before they go off and become a monk or whatever. You know, there's, there's some honoring of that choice. And, and I think we forget that the choice that we are making is very, very difficult and perhaps just as worthy of honoring that, that each of, you know, to choose to do your life as a practice is a, is a very serious, very major decision. Very challenging. Just putting your shoes on. Really. Please, Mary. I was thinking about joyful effort this week, and <laughs> I was thinking, oh, well, like, could I have joyful effort filling out my insurance forms for my flex plan, you know, <laughs> which is something I hate to do. You know? uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
So just trying to like weave some of this into the things that are before you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, dealing with Social Security and Medicare and all of that, if this is part of practice, and I'm so sorry to inform you, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. And so bringing, so what's the right kind of effort? You know, because you could, of course, you could drive yourself nuts filling out all those forms too, right? And so that's not so so skillful. So finding just the right balance of the effort needed, the joy to support it. Yeah. For me, when you started talking about the relationships, uh-huh. the first thought that came to my mind in terms of practice, not that I have any large experience in it, is that that the question of detachment and attachment is uh-huh. the first one I would have to big time deal with. And it's not necessarily just to the person, but also to the memory situation, good and bad. And mm-hmm. I think important... To Mary, we can hear the question. Okay, so the question was, in relationship, what about the issues of detachment and attachment? And how to work that not only with the, the people involved, but also with the situations. And, hmm, it's such a good question. So, um, it's not that there isn't attachment in relationship. It's not even that there isn't attachment that will bring suffering, because there is. One of the things to think about with that teaching about Attachment in the sense of possessiveness or clinging causes suffering, is that this is not a pejorative statement, it's a descriptive statement. So name me a relationship that does not have suffering in it. Every your beloved child, you know, even the best child, even your cat. Even the most perfect cat, who after all doesn't get to be an adolescent or any of those, or not very anyway, you know. But there's still suffering at points. You know, they get lost, they die, they get sick, whatever happens. And then there's a certain, there's pain that comes. Now, understanding that is a kind of letting go. You know, it's possible to have healthy attachments, I think, and still know, you know, that there will, things will change, there will be suffering. You know, Ajahn Chah, there's that wonderful story about how he had a favorite cup, like this one that I really like, and somebody said, aren't you attached? And, you know, you have this favorite cup, you always want it, you know, every time you sit up in front, you've got that cup. And he said, he picked it up and he looked at it and he said, but I consider this cup to be already broken. So this cup, is already broken. It is. You are already broken. Your beloved parents, children, partners, dogs and cats are already dead. They are. And so beginning to understand that begins to alleviate the suffering in those situations. I do not think that this means don't be in relationship. Don't form healthy attachments. It means this is a dangerous area, lots of hazard flags, watch out. Because there are tons of hazard flags around relationships. There's speech, there's attachment, there's all kinds of things that we can do that cause a great deal of suffering. Um, 
you could try to avoid it, but then what are you going to do? Go be a hermit? And even there, probably you can find some ways to suffer, I imagine, and get attached.